This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. This is The Incubator, a weekly discussion about new advances in neonatology and the fascinating individuals who make this progress possible. I am Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. We are neonatal intensive care physicians. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Dr. Barbo, how was that call? Exhausting. But we're in the new hospital. But we're we in the finally new moved. hospital. It's so exciting. You know, our, our, we've got such a good team that it doesn't matter where, really, where we. Yeah. Are so we're now at the, but. we're now at the HCA Florida University Hospital, located on the Nova Southeastern University campus, and um, yeah, we're finally like all the stuff, all the tools, all the cool equipment that we purchased that uh, we're ready to use for QI and research is finally here. Yeah. Um, so that's all very exciting. To that note, actually, if um, we um, our, our physician group here at uh, the University Hospital has social media accounts where we're going to sort of right document mm. uh, the progress, some of the cool things we're doing in the unit. So go follow us. We are on Instagram at Nova Neos, N-O-V-A-N-E-O-S. We are on Twitter at Nova Neonatology, and we're also on LinkedIn. Uh, Nova Neonatology is is our is our handle. And uh, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of cool stuff planned. We're working with the Innovation Center mm. of uh, Nova Southeastern. And and uh, it's kind of cool when when you see the possible applications of technology yeah. uh, in the NICU, right? We are we very excited. Very excited about some of the things. And, and just as exciting is our ability to like collaborate with all of the other um, colleges on campus, which again, for academic centers, this is not rocket science, but yet, yet the medical center tends to function in a silo. And so Mm -hmm. being able to reach out to who have we reached out to, uh, engineering, the computer science, computer science. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the language arts people, the early childhood development, um, the art colleges. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're really, we're diving in. And and it's kind of nice to see that there's, um, there's excitement about our, our yeah. new new presence on campus. People want to want to work with us, and I think it's it's a critical time where when there's momentum, you have to uh, capitalize on it. Otherwise, people get discouraged and move on to something yeah. else. So, we're hoping to make the most of that. And that actually uh, um, transitions quite seamlessly into who our guests are today. Mm-hmm. So, without further ado, I'm going to introduce both of our guests, uh, husband and wife couple. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm going to they have long bios. They're very accomplished people, so let's let's just get right into it. Dr. Kristen Beam is an attending neonatologist at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, in Boston, Massachusetts. She is also an instructor in the Department of Pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. She recently completed her clinical fellowship in neonatal perinatal medicine in the Harvard Combined Neonatal Perinatal Fellowship, as well as the Harvard Wide Pediatric Health Services Research Fellowship, for which she obtained her Master's of Public Health with a focus on quantitative methods at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Her research focuses on machine learning applications for neonatal data with a focus on improving our decision-making in the NICU at the point of care and ultimately improving neonatal outcomes. Dr. Andrew Beam is an assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chen School of Public Health with secondary appointments in the Department of Biomedical Informatics at Harvard Medical School and the Department of Newborn Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital. His research develops and applies machine learning methods to extract meaningful insights from clinical and biological data sets with a special focus on neonatal medicine. He is the recipient of a Pioneer Award from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation for his work on medical artificial intelligence. In addition to his academic work, Dr. Beam has been involved with several successful entrepreneurial ventures and has received several patents. He is the founding head of machine learning at Generate Biomedicines Incorporated, a venture-backed biotechnology company that uses machine learning to improve our ability to engineer novel therapeutic proteins. To date, Generate has raised over $400 million dollars in venture capital and employs more than 80 people. Chris and Andrew, thank you for being on the show with us today. 
Thanks. It's so great to be here. This is my first podcast I've ever done before. So it's really exciting. Yeah, I'm so, excited to be here too. Uh, long time listener, first time caller. I've been uh, keeping up with the podcast. So excited to be on. Thank you. Thank you. So um, so, so for the for the people who may not be aware, you are husband and wife. And uh, so you are the AI artificial intelligence uh, couple. <laughs> um, Dynamic duo. Yeah. The dynamic duo. So I guess where I wanted to start the um, the interview, where uh, from, from the standpoint of definitions, I think the the concept of artificial intelligence has creeped up in our um, common vernacular. We hear it on the radio, on TV, but I don't know if everybody really understands what practically AI or even machine learning, for that purpose, means. Uh, so, so could you help briefly for our audience define a little bit of what artificial intelligence? Is supposed to be and do and and even if we can talk about machine learning at the same by the same token then that would be i think a good place to start yeah so as the clinician i'm going to defer that answer to andrew and let him sort of dive yeah. into those definitions for you guys yeah so um i'll give you sort of a, a brief history of ai and how we got here and that will help um, define some of those terms so ai as a field goes back to the 1950s um there was this sort of like uh, summer camp for nerds that happened in 1956 at Dartmouth where lots of computer scientists got together and said, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could get machines to do things intelligently? Okay. And so that is sort of the, 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 the term artificial intelligence refers to the goal of getting computers to behave in an intelligent way. So then what the field has done since then is try and accomplish that goal. Um, so in the 70s and 80s, there were these things called expert systems. They were super popular in medicine. I can... Uh, give you some references of uh, expert AI systems in the 80s that people made. And really it was computer scientists and clinicians sitting down together. And the computer scientists would try to elicit the reasoning process of the clinicians and then write that down as a program. So when you see a person with these conditions, what type of disease do you think they have? Um, so it turns out that that approach, that expert system approach doesn't scale very well and is brittle. You can imagine you know, I'm sure as clinicians, like trying to be able to articulate the sort of entirety of your reasoning process mm -hmm. would be something that you probably can't do. Sometimes you know it when you see it. You know, it's mm -hmm. hard to sort of formalize um, those rules. So what has happened over the last 20 years, um, especially with the rise of bigger and bigger data sets, is instead of trying to write down what intelligence is, we learn it from data. Mm -hmm. And so we have very powerful machine learning algorithms. Um, that if you show them a data set where sort of those decision rules are implicitly encoded, um, they're able to extract those statistical patterns um, to learn to do the task. So reading chest X-rays is a great example mm -hmm. of this. So spotting pneumonia in a chest X-ray, it's something that doesn't lend itself to that sort of very um, rigid expert system approach. But if you gather up enough X-rays of healthy people and uh, people with pneumonia and you show them to a machine learning algorithm, then they can extract those decision rules automatically. And so when we say machine learning, it's really that statistical pattern recognition, big data approach to artificial intelligence. The goal hasn't changed. We still want intelligent computers, but how we accomplish that goal is what has changed over the last 20 years. And that's where machine learning comes in. I think you're touching on a first point there that is, that is so important is that I think for the people who are familiar with what machine learning and artificial intelligence is, I think people think of, a data set, right? They think of an Excel sheet that's like, oh, I, I plug in the numbers and this this computer will tell me necrotizing enterocolitis, right? And uh, this is, but that's not really all that is. And you mentioned the reading of x-rays. And I think conceptually for people, this may be difficult to understand in terms of what do you mean? Like the computer is going to read an x-ray, like, but the computer doesn't have eyes. So can you tell our audience about what computers can do when it comes to actually visualization of images, ultrasounds, and things like that? Because I think that's new for a lot of people. Yeah. So just to sort of continue the thread, uh, what has happened over the last 10 years is the rise of a specific kind of machine learning approach called deep learning. Um, and deep learning um, has given us sort of artificial eyes. Like it's very good at analyzing images. It's very good at analyzing text. And actually sort of data as it exists in an Cell spreadsheet form um, isn't as good for deep learning models. You really need sort of rich structured data um, like imaging um, and like text where there's lots of information about the patient encoded in those data sets. So I think what has really happened over the last 10 years is we have um, had new types of data be unlocked 
for us. So traditionally, it's very hard to analyze images. But now sort of because of deep learning, it's very easy. And so one of the things that I, I always try to get my clinician friends to, to think about is what types of, thi types of things do you have imaging data on? Um, even if you don't think that the imaging data might be relevant for your research question, there could be sort of physiological signal in there that the, these deep learning algorithms can extract for us. Mm -hmm. And I think on that note, like what, what we as clinicians often don't realize about images is like behind the image, there's just a whole slew of data that makes that image. And so it's not that the computer is actually looking at the picture and seeing what the picture looks like. It's that the the algorithm is looking at the data behind the picture and thinking about relationships between each individual pixel in the picture to help build the algorithm and to help build the prediction model. So I think that's probably some of the confusion that exists when we're talking about using these algorithms for image analysis. And I think that underscores the level of sophistication mm -hmm. because we're thinking of, of a global image, but the algorithm will actually break it down by pixel We'll look at the shades of each, each pixel in relationship with surrounding pixel, determine patterns from that standpoint, and then come up with, uh, uh, with a structure that, that either goes for a certain diagnosis or not. And once you start appreciating that level of complexity, you can understand maybe some of the potential, the potential abilities of, of uh, AI and machine learning. Yeah, exactly. And that's where some of my research interest in this area has really come out of because I yeah. think there are some signals in those images that we as clinicians are unable to appreciate. Yeah, I think that there's like a, a bit and I don't I don't, don't want to jump ahead in the, the question list here, but um, I think that a lot of imaging stuff will end up being sort of pan diagnostic. So like not just di diagnosing um, uh, a pneumothorax or something on a chest x-ray, but mortality prediction. There's lots of it, it, physiological information encoded in that. And so, um, and I mean, there was a, there was a paper that showed you could develop a cardiovascular risk score on the basis of retinal imaging um, because the vascular wow. health, the blood pressure, smoking status is encoded in people's eyes. Um, and so there are all these like rich signals um, that have diagnostic and prognostic utility. And one of the things that I think me and Kristen are excited about is bringing that to the NICU and if you're going to get a chest x-ray anyway, what else can we use the, that data mm -hmm. for to inform clinical decision making? My mind is already a little bit blown, I have to tell <laughs> you, because I am one of those people who did not understand the the terms. And Ben, I'll tell you, we, we were looking for a virtual assistant, and I literally thought it was a robot assistant. So this is all... <laughs> Very earth shattering to me. I, I really like that description about how um, it's really some of that data that like, I, I don't even understand how images are processed, right? So uh, the, the, I'll never be able to understand that. Can you maybe bring us back a little bit and explain? So like, how do the computers, how do you even get the computers to learn, like mm -hmm. to, 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 to process that data? I can I can take Go a stab it. at it, yeah. and then um, you can fill in some gaps. But um, so I think what's really important is having the right data, and this is what all of these algorithms are built on. So to get an algorithm to quote learn something, you definitely you have to have your inputs and you have to have your correct outputs. So most of these algorithms are trying to predict some sort of outcome. And so those outcomes, you know, in the NICU world are outcomes that we're usually trying to predict are things like BPD, neck, sepsis, um, mortality. So we have to have those outcomes in some sort of gold standard form. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have data that may support those outcomes. So you then basically take some of these outcomes and match it to your data and say, this is a true positive. This is a true bronchopulmonary dysplasia baby. And these are the factors that led to that. And then you have another one that this is a baby that doesn't have bronchopulmonary dysplasia. And these are the factors associated with that. The algorithm then can sort of um, learn between those two and come up with basically a probability of a baby developing bronchopulmonary dysplasia or a baby not developing bronchopulmonary dysplasia. So I think the really important thing is those outcomes and how we label those outcomes in our large data sets. And maybe it'd also be helpful to sort of give you a mental model for the mechanics of how. So this is a, a tear-free, no math 
introduction uh, to deep learning. Yeah, let's try. Um, let's try. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, so what I'd like for you to imagine is like, um, do you know like a sound engineer's board that has all of these dials? You can move certain levels up, you can move them down. They have knobs that you can turn and it changes how the, the sound sounds. Even I know um, that. So, so imagine <laughs> imagine that, but you can, you, you put an image in into the soundboard and instead of the mix coming out the other side, a probability of disease comes out. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you put the image in um, and a probability of disease comes out. Um, and how you turn the knobs will dictate sort of the level of that probability. Mm -hmm. So all machine learning is, is a way to set the values of all of those knobs such that you get the most accurate set of probabilities for a given data set. So the way the learning dynamic works is I will show the, the machine learning algorithm a single image. It will essentially guess randomly at the beginning about the probability of diseases. I will tell it the correct answer. So this actually was um, an ROP case, or this actually was a pneumothorax. And then the math is how we go and change all of those knobs so that the probability that the model is giving me matches the, the correct answer that I've given it. And so we do that millions and millions and millions of times. And eventually we're left with a setting of the knobs that gives us super accurate predictions. And so when we say learning, I think people have this mental model of like, we have a toddler and she like counted to six today. And that like, she's clearly like learning to count. Uh, really what is going on is this kind of optimization procedure where we are um, setting the values and some of these networks have millions or billions of knobs that have to be set. Yeah, I think, um, I think for some people, one way I was explaining, I was explaining the concept of, of, uh, of deep learning is like you're studying for a test. You're going to do question after question after question. And after a while, you're going to say, well, now I've done 17 questions like this. And I know that when they ask me this, this is the answer. When on mm -hmm. the test, a similar question shows up, you've been tuned to recognize the hints in the question mm -hmm. to say, oh, I know the answer because I've done it before. And the machine does exactly the same thing, um, except that it will identify based on probability and statistics what these factors are, like you're saying, those knobs in terms of, oh, I should really, that factor really is critical in the decision-making process. So I think I think this is a great way of, of explaining it. Um, sorry, Daphne, you, you were gonna go? No, I mean, it's, it sounds not unlike medical training where you, you have your first uh, presentation, you make a guess, and then somebody tells you, yes, but, and uh, this, is, this is why that's not the right answer, and you kind of refine your way, but, but will the computers do it better than us eventually? I think that's kind of the ultimate question. <laughs> um, I think that's the question that a lot of people are, some people are excited about and some people are afraid of. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a chance to give you a little bit of background into <laughs> us uh -oh. and how we sort of got to this place. <laughs> so we, when I was in medical school, we were like out to dinner one night, eating some Mexican and food. We, we had just started dating is yeah, the context we were, here. We were just start, yeah. yeah, we just started dating at this point. Yeah. And we were out to dinner, eating some Mexican food. And Andrew tells me, well, yeah, I'm going to just replace all the doctors one day. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, so you know I'm in medical school and then I won't have a job. <laughs> so like, if, if we're going to like do this, don't, uh, you know, you want me to have a job. And he's like, yeah, but I'm just going to replace your job. It was, it, admittedly, it was a bold strategy for a first date. <laughs> yeah. Very yeah. bold. <laughs> yeah. Risk so I was like, okay, so I understand that you're interested in this computer science and whatever this artificial intelligence thing is. You know, this was like 10 years ago. Um, but I was like, I don't think you can, approach it that way. You're not going to get anywhere with clinicians if you just go everywhere and you say, I'm going to replace your job. I'm going to replace your job. <laughs> yeah. And so I think over time, maybe he still thinks that, but I think over time I have pulled I him. I think he was just crying, trying to create dependency at the time, you know, you need, if, if you're going to re be replaced, you need to hedge and like <laughs> get with someone who's going to do the, the replacing. <laughs> you need me more than you know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think over time, um, we've sort of discussed how, okay, so if that's your ultimate goal, okay, you know, that's, it's going to take a while. But I think what's important is what artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, all of these things are really doing right now is how can we as clinicians do our job better and get better outcomes mm -hmm. for our patients. And so that's really the perspective that I'm using this mm -hmm. to come at all of these questions 
And I think that you would say you probably agree with that a little bit yeah. more now. Before before I, I before we create a, a marital problem, <laughs> I wanted to I wanted to um, orient this question a bit more because I'm a big fan of uh, Professor Hannah Fry, who wrote this book uh, called Hello World: uh, Being Human in the Age of Algorithms, and she talks about the relationship or at least the differences between machine and humans from the standpoint of sensitivity and specificity. And she's mm -hmm. making the argument that machines are very good at one of them and, and humans are good at the other. And she's mm -hmm. making the case that, Kristen, you're making where we could work together because we complement each other from that standpoint. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if you could uh, go a little bit into that in terms of how when we're look at, looking at it from sensitivity versus specificity, we can see a bit of the difference between machines and humans. So I think I would just reframe that and to like, answer Daphne's question too. I think that algorithms are as good, if not slightly better in very narrow tasks. Mm. So if you train them to do like one thing, they're very good at that. They don't get tired. They don't get hungry. And if the properties of the data don't change, they're very good at that. What they're not good at, at doing is generalizing. So if any of the things about, if the population that you're using the tool on changes, they sort of just fall on their face. If like the lighting conditions change, they like really fall on their face. So they're very sensitive to changes that humans are robust to. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that there's still a really big gap, sort of a really big generalization gap for the way we currently do AI when compared to their human counterparts. So I still do think that it's, you know, as Kristen said, like, not and also just I feel like I have to clarify. <laughs> uh, I'm not I'm not trying to replace the healthcare workforce. Just I want to state that clearly. Um, um, but I still think that certainly, like in the you know the near term, there is this like deep need for physician algorithm partnership mm -hmm. um, to sort of babysit the algorithms, make sure that they're not doing anything obviously stupid, and also. Sort of, I always sort of describe it as a superpower for clinicians. Um, there's lots of sort of rote work that clinicians have to do. That is, there's no reason why we can't handle some of that stuff over to the algorithm, and then the clinician can focus on the the cases that really requires um, her attention. Yeah, and I think in that way, you know, humans are able to be a little more flexible um, with our decision making versus these algorithms that we develop. So. Mm -hmm. I think that's how we can all work together. Um, I guess when when we're talking about, I mean, I think I think this is a this is a discussion that could be several hours on its own in terms of human. I mean, there's a lot of interesting data when it comes to the judicial system about judges really having a lot of variability in their in their sentencing depending on the lunchtime the effect. Their lunchtime, depending on whether their sports team won or lost the day before, depending on whether the judge has uh, a child that is male or female, and depending on what the accuser, all mm -hmm. these things. But somehow, when we still ask people, would you rather be judged by a human versus a machine? There's that element like, oh, I maybe want the compassion of the of the human and not the, the rigidity. So it's a, it's a very interesting discussion, obviously. And, and I don't think, I think this is maybe beyond the scope of our of our interview today. But I guess my uh, my question is when it comes, we've been talking about um, algorithms and AI in the NICU and in clinical decision making. I think for a lot of people, it's difficult to visualize where. How does that enter the NICU? Like, is this yeah. is this going to be like? Are you going to roll the new machine into the unit that like now is going to start talking to us on rounds? Is this something that is like a, a plugin that we're going to put in our EMR? Um, mm -hmm. How does that look in practice? I mean. Where, where, how, how does AI enter our, our ICU? Yeah, so first, I think AI already exists, in a sense, in our NICUs. And a lot of us probably just aren't even aware that that's true. And I think the way we can think about some machine learning and even some aspect of AI and prediction modeling is logistic regression, which I think most of us are very familiar with. Um, and so those exist in the NICU already. So if you think about the early onset sepsis calculator that a lot of us use, um, that is a prediction model, um, a multivariate logistic regression that helps us decide whether a baby needs to be evaluated for early onset sepsis or not. Mm -hmm. So we have these calculators that do exist. Another one is the BPD risk estimator. Um, and interestingly, I have a project right now where we are talking, we're 
asking neonatologists and neonatal care providers to tell us how they are using some of these calculators that we have in the NICU and how they affect our decision-making and if they're useful at all. Because I think a lot of these calculators have been developed, even other ones that I'm not talking about right now, but they're just not integrated into our daily workflow. Mm -hmm. So instead of, so maybe there's a machine that comes in for certain things um, for AI, but I think what's going to come first is really these clinical decision support tools Mm -hmm. that help us at the point of care every day during rounds to help make a decision about um, whether we should give steroids for BPD, whether we should draw a blood culture right now because this baby's at really high risk of sepsis or whether we, um, how many days is this baby really going to be here on a spell count (laughs) before they can go home? So I think those are the ways that AI is going to come into the NICU first and ways in which it's actually already there. We just don't consider it, quote, AI in the NICU right now. Yeah. I'd also like to talk about, so like, so I, I, I totally agree that sort of an EHR risk calculator is the easiest point of entry. But if your question is about like permanent adoption, then you really have to think about sort of more sustainable business models. So I, I'm sure that as clinicians, like you all know that there's a million calculators that you could use, but no one really uses them. I mean, Kristen is writing a survey to try and sort of get at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think unless there is some type of entity behind a particular tool that is constantly iterating and improving upon it to get it adopted, um, it, it's not going to sort of have traction and have staying power. So medical devices in other areas of medicine uh, that are powered by AI have received FDA approval and have like commercialization strategies around those. So like I wouldn't be surprised in the near term if there are sort of devices um, like your ultrasound all of a sudden is now easier to use and gives mm-hmm. you interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, like the RETCAM things um, automatically give you interpretation mm-hmm. or do the reads for you. So so my guess is like things that are going to be durable are going to have some type of business model like that behind them um, and are going to be an FDA approved device um, and things like that. Uh, I think the sort of long-term vision is that you just don't know that you're interacting with AI. Like, mm-hmm. so it's just in the EHR, it's pulling in all these signals and sort of all of a sudden your job is easier to do. Um, the sort of example that I give is with smart devices. So if you think about like how I used to access my music collection, I had physical CDs, you know, in the visor of my car, <laughs> right, right, uh, right. I, I would fumble through and then like put the CD in and then try and remember the track that I wanted to listen uh-huh. to. But now I just say like, Alexa, play the Red Hot Chili Peppers or something. Right. Um, and so accessing the Alexa, be quiet. <laughs> uh, there's there's actually one down here. Sorry about that. Um, but accessing the information that I want is just significantly easier now. And AI has facilitated that. And so that is sort of what I imagine the 10, 20 year vision for medicine being is that like you don't you're not conscious that you're interacting with some type of artificial intelligence. It's just much easier to get the information uh, to make the decisions that you want to make. Yeah, we reviewed this paper with mm-hmm. uh, the red cam, yeah, right? Yeah. About like the ability of the of the of the camera to interpret for ROP. It's fascinating, and it, obviously the applications are are staggering. Um, I want to go into a, a thorny subject. So, I, Daphne, anything else that you want to talk about before? Well, uh, one of my one of my questions is, I think what people worry about with especially with new technologies is you know what if i get information that i wasn't anticipating or um what do i do with it right if i got you know a baby who's well appearing but based on my ai it says that this baby you know is going to be in trouble shortly you know so how to how might we you know, negotiate that um, moving forward as we're getting more and more information that we may not understand quite yet. Yeah, my co-host is great because that's exactly what I wanted to go into. <laughs> but yeah. I think I think I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a bit more uncomfortable because what about liability? Mm. Right? I mean if if AI says this baby like Daphne said has sepsis and I say I disagree. And then mm-hmm. this baby ends up having sepsis. Yeah. <laughs> am I am I going to then be liable this to to against say, somebody saying, well, the machine algorithm told you 
this is a baby that you should have evaluated. So now you're responsible. And I think that idea alone can be very frightening for clinicians when it comes to the adoption of AI. Like, let me make the decision. I don't want to be put on the spot and then have to justify myself against the computer. So I guess currently the best legal thinking is that the buck still stops with the clinician. Yeah. Um, that if you, if there, especially if there are guidelines and you go off guidelines and defer to the algorithm, then you're the one who's liable in the case of, a, of an adverse event. Um, going back to the medical device situation, I'll, some manufacturers offer liability insurance such that if you follow the algorithm and something happens, they are holding the liability bag. Um, I think that in those like narrow instances, it's, it, currently it's sort of much more clear cut. Um, as these things uh, grow in scope and grow in use cases, um, I think that liability reform will have to happen. And I don't know what the future of that looks like. Um, my guess is that there, there might be some sort of blanket policy that covers um, clinicians um, in that case. But in the case that there's an FDA device that you're using, often the device manufacturer will offer liability insurance. In the case when uh, you defer to the, the algorithm, but there's a guideline that you're not following, then you hold it there. Yeah, I think the fact that you're mentioning that manufacturers are willing to offer liability insurance should underscore how confident they mm -hmm. are in the ability right. of the tools to do their jobs. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. A very they've done some type of actuarial calculation that says that all of that is worth it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then on the same, on the same line of, of um, same line of thinking, can we talk a little bit about the concept of black box AI, where we're going to ask clinicians to, to deal with something that they have pretty much no understanding of. And I feel like, especially in the NICU, I don't know, Kristen, if you agree, we like to know how things work, mm -hmm. meaning most of us know how our vents are working. We know um, whether the type of ventilation that we're providing, we know how, the, how it functions. A lot of us are kind of handymen to begin with. Um, how does that work? And, and can you define to us what, what, uh, what black, black box AI means? Yeah, I will. It's interesting because, um, so Andrew just published a paper about AI explainability um, interpretability recently. And so it's had some exposure on Twitter and we actually just were discussing it in a Twitter thread last night. Um, one thing I would say, and just to add a little controversy to this is do, do we as clinicians always know exactly why we're making a decision? Um, I would say that we don't always. Mm -hmm. And I think that we, we want to think we always know why we're making a decision. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a lot of times we make a decision and we can talk ourselves into why we got there. I gave this baby this medicine because the sodium was this and the creatinine was this and the vent settings were this. So like this medication makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we can explain how we got there, but I don't know that we can do that up front. I think we sort of do that post hoc and mm -hmm. we, um, so that's just my one point there is that we want to think that we're understanding every decision that we're making. And I, I don't think we always do. And I think that's, that's okay. We go through a lot of training. We see a lot of examples of things and we sort of walk into a patient's room and we're like, Oh, this does not feel good. I don't like what's going on here. Mm -hmm. And so we have this like feeling when we go into a room sometimes. Um, so I think, talking about the black box, which is a lot of what clinicians are concerned about with these algorithms is that, well, I don't understand why the algorithm is making the decision it's making. I think we should reflect on ourselves and understand that we don't always know why we're making decisions. We come into each experience with our own biases, with our own experiences, with our own last patient that we mm -hmm. saw with this condition. And so that is explaining all of the steps that we're making when we go into a room and make a decision as well. And then I'll let you talk a little bit about yeah. the overall. So I think that, that was, that was an amazing description. Um, I, I think that the other point too, is that there are black boxes all over the hospital. Mm. Um, and so most people, most clinicians couldn't tell you exactly how an MRI machine works, mm -hmm. how it does what it does or, or do the read of the MRI um, in some cases. Um, I think that lots of drugs have unknown mechanisms of action, but they've been shown, to, I mean, this is especially true in the NICU, mm -hmm. um, but they've been shown to be safe and effective in clinical trials. And so the paper that Kristen alluded to, we were trying to like make the point that like 
black boxes are everywhere. The current methods that we have to explain artificial intelligence algorithms aren't so good and can be misleading. So let's instead like let's do thorough validation. If if if, it, if it's a question about how do I trust this thing, um, then uh, a trust mechanism would be we validated this in the same way that we validated mm -hmm. a drug, and therefore you can feel safe using it on your patients. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like the explainability black box question um, is getting at that sort of fundamental trust question, but going in this like very circuitous kind of way, given sort of what Kristen said, where a lot of people can't sort of interrogate their own decision-making process to a perfect level. And there are already all these other black boxes that we're perfectly comfortable using mm -hmm. in the hospital. Yeah, especially in the NICU, like you said. Yeah. Even um, as far as like, I can't completely explain to you why Tylenol could work for a PDA closure. <laughs> you know, like that, like endomethacin and ibuprofen, that mechanism of action seems straightforward to me, but like Tylenol is a little bit fuzzier. Um, mm -hmm. We don't totally understand that one, but we use it. I um, think we yeah. have an idea. Right. We think we have an idea. I mean, but we not... do that for a lot of medications, right? Right, so, exactly. Especially in the unis. Yeah. Um, I, I think you brought up, I mean, you brought up so many good points, but particularly about how we bring our own bias into mm -hmm. the work. And I wonder, given, um, you know, how much inequity and inequality there is in healthcare, particularly mm -hmm. in the NICU, um, we know that that happens and particularly the way we collect data um, is biased. Um, you know, I, I wonder, um, you know, is, can AI help us be less biased? Does it have its own bias? You know, how, how do we protect from, you know, worsening the kind of inequalities that we already see in healthcare? Yeah, that's a great question and great point. I think, I think, AI and the systems that we develop and the algorithms we develop are only as good as the data that we have to make these algorithms. And that brings us to a point that I am really trying, you know, at this early phase of my career to like make these databases better mm -hmm. and make more accessible databases that can really have more granular information and better outcome definitions. And I think that will help us in a way remove some of the bias that comes with data collection that we have. So I think the more granular the data can be that we collect mm -hmm. down to the waveforms we see on the monitor every day, like collecting those waveform pieces will really help us get down to a more physiologic definition of what we're seeing happening in the NICU. And for that to happen, I think there needs to be a lot of like collaboration between institutions, a lot of coordination between institutions, which we have in some aspects, like there's the Vermont Oxford Network, there's the Neonatal Research Network, like we're trying to collect these things, but I don't think it's down to that granular data mm -hmm. point yet. Um, and I think we can get there with the right with the right people getting together and working on that. Um, but I think that will help with some of the biases. Mm -hmm. But there are algorithms out there right now, and this has been like really publicized in different ways um, that are very biased. And it's because the data that's put into those algorithms is biased. So there's this is especially true in some derm uh, dermatology literature, <clears throat> thinking about um, detecting different skin cancers or skin diseases. Unfortunately, a lot of the data that goes into those algorithms is on people with lighter skin. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're missing a large portion of the population with dark skin. And so now the, the diagnosis of these skin disorders are missing people with darker skin. Mm -hmm. So making sure you're very thoughtful in the way that you're collecting your data and that you're very thoughtful in when you're building this algorithm that you are trying to think through those pieces um, is going to be really important moving forward. Yeah. And so just to add a little on to that, um, uh, the data, the, the algorithm is going to reflect back to you the biases in the data that you give it. Mm -hmm. So if the data that you give the algorithm reflect, reflect structural or societal biases, and you don't do any proactive measures to correct those, mm -hmm. then those will also be reflected in the algorithm's decision-making process. So I think that like what Kristen was saying, like having big, broad, representative data sets um, where we have uh, sort of tried to ascertain to the best of our ability 
what biases went into creating those data sets mm -hmm. is super important. I will say sort of on a hopeful note though, um, there has been work showing that ML can actually help reduce disparities. Um, so there is this like paper in Nature Medicine um, last year that looked at knee pain scores uh, using x-rays. And so historically black Americans have reported higher levels of knee pain, but their you know, clinicians have uh, sometimes not believed them. And so what they did was train, instead of training the algorithm to predict the clinician's diagnosis on the basis of the x-ray, they predicted this objective pain score. Mm. And they actually found regions in the knee in black Americans that were correlated with that pain that were previously unknown um, uh, to the radiology community. So That's now they cool. have a, the ability to explain these objective pain scores yeah, cool. um, that were sort of clinicians were blind to. So I think that it is sort of a double-edged sword in that it can exacerbate and operationalize existing biases, but there's also this opportunity to help sort of mitigate um, some existing structural ones too. Mm -hmm. I'm so happy we're talking about data mm -hmm. because even in our institution, when we're we're starting to try to yeah. uh, look at AI and stuff like that, and and people have been asking me, so like, let's do it, and I'm like, okay, we need to start gathering good data, and people are like, but we're already doing that, like, duh, and it's it's exactly right. You're shaking your head, <laughs> <laughs> but it's exactly the problem. And when you start telling people who expect you to bring uh, like this robot from from uh, Spielberg's movie AI to the NICU, it's like, no, I just need better data to begin with, people are like, oh, this is not what we anticipated. Uh, in your opinion, what is the state of affairs when it comes to the data that we're casually collecting in the NICU? Do you think that it's, it's uh, in your, I guess, in your opinion, is this something that uh, needs to be completely overhauled, how we collect data as, as of today? Or is this something that can be fixed? Or is it, or is it good? I don't know. I think it all depends on the question you're trying to ask to the algorithm. So, um, but I do think there are some big holes in our data collection. Um, so I think, I think in the NICU community, we just have such an opportunity to implement these different algorithms because we have so much data on a daily basis. I mean, we know everything about this patient from the moment they're admitted until they go home. And that is something that doesn't exist in other areas of medicine. Um, adults, you know, come in and out of the healthcare system. And so stuff happens at home that we're not aware of. But for an infant in the NICU, I mean, everything that happens to that baby is recorded in some way. So I think we're at a good starting point. I don't think we need to like completely overhaul. I think we're at a good starting point, but I do think there's some holes. So traditionally, Waveform data has not been collected and saved. I think we're moving towards that a little bit more now, um, not universally, but in certain places. And um, I think, yeah, I think we're trying to get those more granular pieces of the data, but we still need more work in that. I think the other thing is that we need our definitions of the outcomes need to be mm -hmm. a little bit more straightforward. And, you know, we listened to the um, Eric, Jensen. Eric Jensen episode yeah. you guys did talking yeah. about the BPD definition. Yeah. And I mean, that that one is like near and dear to my heart because it's something I'm interested in predicting as well. Um, but the definitions for different diseases we have need some improvement <laughs> as well. So, so, so I think we're at a good starting point, but I think there's more we can do. So yeah, and, about, oh, go ahead, go ahead, Andrew. No, go, I, I was just say to add on to that, um, I, I, there's a lot of like institutional variability. So I have sort of collaborators at different hospitals and it seems like some hospitals throw away 90% of their data because they don't understand mm -hmm. the value in it. And they're not savoring monitoring data. They're not sort of instrumented for like research purposes. Some other like usually standalone children's hospitals just seem to have this thing nailed. And they have like an amazing IT infrastructure and can do all these amazing queries. Um, um, but sort of even, so I, I think that some hospitals do it better or some NICUs do it better than others. Um, but the data that is in the NICU, I think that we've only unlocked like 2% of the potential of the mm -hmm. existing data. So I think there's several dozen careers worth of exciting machine learning and AI to do with current data that is generated by the NICU. We just have to systematically collect it and store it. Um, I do think that there are some things that are still not captured by um, um, the NICU now that we can talk about, but I, I think that there's just so much that we could do if we could leverage the data that's already generated. 
I was thinking about when we were talking about papers, right? In medical school, you're taught that generalizability is an important factor, meaning mm -hmm. a paper that was published in Japan may not be generalizable <laughs> to our population for Daphne and I in South Florida because people differ based on geographical location. Do you think this is a critical aspect of AI where local data sets are going to be very important, meaning I won't be able to get good uh, outputs from my algorithms if the data that the algorithm is being trained on is data from babies, in the, in the case of the NICU, that are geographically in a complete different area with completely different parameters uh, surrounding them. Um, do you think that's true? And, and if yes, and I guess we're all going to need to start collecting, collecting our own local data now. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. So in the sense that, so I'm in Boston and we have a lot of NICUs up here. And as part of my fellowship, I rotated through all of them. Right. And all of them are slightly different. Like mm -hmm. just as every NICU uh, everywhere practices medicine, you know, practices neonatology like slightly differently. Just one guideline is slightly different than another. So I think when we're developing these algorithms, we need either you develop it in one institution, you validate it in another institution um, and see what the differences are, or even better would be to have more of a general data collection repository that's really representative of different regions of the country, as different um, levels of NICUs, different populations of babies. And then you develop an algorithm on that data set and you're likely to have a more generalizable algorithm. I think one group that's doing that really well is um, the Mednox group with their um, baby steps mm -hmm. uh, data collection piece. So I think I think they have a format where they're collecting more granular data on a daily basis. And it is representative of kind of more of a national scale than some of just the institution by institution databases. Yeah, I'll just say, um, so one solution, though, is that you can sort of do what's called fine tuning at a given institution. So like if someone trains a model um, at their institution and you want to use it at yours and you can collect the same type of labeled data, you can then sort of adapt the algorithm to the local characteristics of your institution in a pretty straightforward way. Um, but yeah, I, like the, we've been doing some work with the Mednax group and the data set that they have is sort of unlike any academic data set that I've had, that I've, I've seen before. And, you know, hundred, hundreds of institutions and things like that. And to me, that is the solution. Um, in, it, don't have, don't worry about external validation because everything is internal is the, like the real answer. Um, if you have a big coalition, uh, a big data set where all of these, you, you're part of the, the training data set, um, I think is the actual answer um, versus trying to, you know, hope that the institution uh, that you're at is like an institution that was in, in the training data set. Because all institutions are so different. We're all treating different populations of patients, different families, um, different regions of the country. So if we were just able to bring all that data into one central place, I think that would be amazing and mm -hmm. ideal for developing these algorithms. My question um, was really about, um, you know, especially when I think about babies and how they function in their families and how, you know, uh, when we think about um, generational impacts and things like that. Um, do you think that there will be a time where um, we're actually incorporating more data outside of the unit, like from families to, you know, understand their home lives, to understand, um, you know, maternal stressors, prenatally, mm -hmm. so many things that we aren't even close to capturing um, in the electronic medical record? Yeah, I think there could be a great opportunity with that, especially with like different follow-up programs mm -hmm. to really capture data in that sense. Um, it is it is more challenging once a baby leaves the NICU and then, you know, you're it's you know, you're getting your loss to follow up at that point. And so um, it could be difficult to gather that information back. But I do think there are some other people who are interested in a little bit more of that post NICU discharge prediction of, you know, neurodevelopmental outcomes, school readiness, all these other things that um if we could develop a way to collect that data as well in a really systematic way, then um, we could incorporate those into. And I, I think another opportunity in the future is to send them home with some type of wearable device, depending on mm -hmm. like what types of data you would need to collect. 
sending them home with like a tiny Fitbit or sending them home with some type of passive sensor. Or even if you're talking about like maternal stress being super important, offer mom a Fitbit too. And you can see if she's having heart rate spikes and things like that. So I think that they're, I'm a big fan of things that are passive. Um, so like if mom has to fill out a questionnaire every day or something like that, right. um, that's I'm skeptical that she, she's had this very stressful event in the NICU. Her, she's finally gotten her baby home and asking her to do homework every night. Um, uh, you know, maybe is a useful thing, but I'm also skeptical that uh, you'd get a good response right there. So I think depending on the types of information that you would need once they leave, you, that you could think about passively collecting some of that using something like a wearable or using some type of in-home sensor. Um, but I think that that's also an underexplored area right now. We're going to have on our show, Dr. Ross Summers, who's mm -hmm. actually working exactly on that and trying to, trying to roll out deliver, uh, wearable sensors for babies after discharge from the NICU. So yeah, you're absolutely right yeah. about that. Sorry, Kristen. Awesome. Yeah. I was just going to say another thing, you know, that's getting a lot more traction is incorporating families and parents mm -hmm. into building different prediction models or building guidelines. That's um, cool. And so I think that, you know, once, you know, incorporating them early into these systems is probably better than building something and saying, oh, well, do you think this is important? So I think as we move forward, incorporating families and patients um, into the structure of the algorithm so that we're actually predicting things that families care about, mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. you know, do family like do families care about a diagnosis of BPD? I don't know. Right. <laughs> um, you know, I think some do. I think some maybe don't as long as their baby comes home. Do families care how long their baby's in the hospital? Yeah. Like that's yeah. the number one question that we all get at those prenatal consults. So, um, so I think understanding what families actually want to be predicted is really important too. Uh, we're coming to the end of the episode. We we have about fifteen minutes left, and I wanted to um, I wanted to approach a subject that we're definitely not going to have time to go over uh, fully. But let's say I think I think this episode is going to create three types of people. There's going to be people who are going to be absolutely no. I'm going to stay as far away from AI as possible, and that's fine. I think we're going to have bystanders, and we're going to have people that are going to be super stoked about the potentials and everything. But it's very for people who have gone through regular training, college, med school, residency, who have no training in computer science, data, data analysis, uh, how how do you, how do you say okay, like I'm interested, this sounds very cool, what do I, what can I do? I I don't know how to code, I I don't know how to do any of these things. So is it just not going to be for me? How can you give us a little bit of a roadmap as to how can clinicians who want to embrace AI can actually get involved? Yeah. So that's me. <laughs> um, I went through, I mean, I don't know if I should say this. I went through undergrad. I never had to take a statistics class in medical school. We took our like epidemiology class, which I think we all sort of just do because we have to. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you learn sensitivity and specificity every time you have to take a board exam or something. So, you know, I got through to the end of residency and that's where I was. I had no idea how to code. I had you know, enough statistical knowledge to read the papers I need to read for my clinical practice and understand that. So I think it's okay if you don't know how to do all those things and you're still interested in this area. I think it's still a really approachable field to get into. Um, my story, well, one is I did marry someone who has a PhD in bioinformatics and does artificial intelligence. So, I mean, you could do that, but it's a high cost strategy. Like we're not, we're not saying everyone should do that. <laughs> You can still get involved. Um, I, during my fellowship, I did an additional research fellowship, mm. um, which is this, it's a health services research fellowship. And I was able to get my master's of public health in quantitative methods during over a two-year time period. That really gave me the skills that I need to move forward as a clinician interested in this area. I think that clinicians should not be afraid to get into the like computer science AI world. But I think we also need to say like, I'm not ever going to be able to completely code something or mm -hmm. completely build something on my own. I think partnerships between multiple fields are really important. So I think what clinicians can bring to this is some understanding of some prediction models, some basic understanding of coding, um, which I can talk about in a second. And 
just some questions mm-hmm. and understanding the questions and what, what we want out of that. Mm-hmm. And then clinicians can bring our knowledge of the clinical environment to people who can actually build these algorithms and actually carry out that super technical piece. Like we're just not going to be that technical and that's okay. Um, but we have a lot of knowledge about just what happens day to day to do that. If you do want to get into coding though, I mean, I am like a, you know, novice coder, but like I can do some coding things and R for data science is a really good book that I think is pretty straightforward for clinicians. If you want to learn some R coding. Um, Yep. I'll just also say that, um, I help organize two conferences where like physicians and clinicians are first class citizens around AI. (laughs) So one is called machine learning for health and the other is called the conference on health inference and learning chill. Um, so we always have clinician speakers. We always have work groups at these conferences, uh, that sort of, uh, encourage clinicians and computer scientists to intermingle, to foster these kinds of relationships. Um, if you're at sort of a research hospital or an academic hospital, I would look up people in your computer science directory who are doing this. Computer scientists know that, um, sort of machine or that medicine is sort of the frontier mm-hmm. of AI. And so if you call, I get cold emails all the time um, from clinical researchers and I'm always happy to meet with them and sort of start new collaboration. So mm-hmm. um, I, I would guess if you, if, if folks who are interested, email people at their sort of in their local environment, they would find lots of willing uh, collaborators who would help sort of um, onboard them to what's going on in AI. Yeah. And I would just encourage clinicians to not be shy or scared of, getting involved in this field because yeah. I do think we just bring so much to um, a, like a computer scientist comes at this from one direction and we're coming at it from another. And it, both are so important if we actually want to make forward progress mm-hmm. in this field. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, to, to get even more practical, I mean, if you Google uh, courses, artificial intelligence, you most likely will have some courses trying to teach you either Python, TensorFlow, all these, uh, all these, um, these coding softwares. And they're very daunting when you, when you approach that. You would, what, is, what is the one thing that people, if they want to say, okay, I want, I'm not, like you said, I'm not going to be able to be coding fully by myself and do everything by myself, but I want to get enough of the basics. What should people start to look for online uh, in terms of w- what is it called? Uh, you said mentioned quantitative methods, but like, what is the what is the kind of words that people have to put in their search engine to uh, to fall in the in the right places? Yeah, there's the the courses online. Yeah, so I I, I think it, it depends. Uh, it's hard to answer that in the abstract um, because I'd be weary to give you, like you said, uh, PyTorch and TensorFlow search terms, only for that to to be um, sort of hopelessly like too technical. Um, I think that honestly, there are uh, the sort of sweet spot for this are blog posts and uh, mm-hmm. YouTube videos. Okay. Um, that there are lots that are at the sort of right conceptual level, and I would say deep learning neural net tutorial would be sort of where I would start. I would start sort of programming agnostic and um, sort of get the basics. There's an excellent series of YouTube videos from this guy named Three Blue One Brown, um, where he talks about how neural networks work and he has these amazing visualizations um, and watching those would probably be like, give you enough to then know sort of what the next hop that you need to, to take is. Perfect. And, and if you don't mind, maybe we can put these in the, in the show notes so that people can actually have access to that. that that's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. And like you said, I think there's some people who just, you know, this isn't what they're going to do. But I think you brought up a point that any of us who do research um, are engaged, right? Because that research mm-hmm. will go into an algorithm sometimes. So um, yeah. are, any tips for people who are starting projects or who are collecting data um, about, you know, how they can refine that, how they can make it more granular, like you said, so that we get better data. Yeah, I just think collecting data broadly, if you can, is always going to be better. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you're collecting data, partnering with someone who would be interested in building the algorithm and understanding what pieces of information they would need to help build that algorithm. So, you know, one of my projects I'm interested in is using some chest x-rays early in a neonate's course to predict BPD um, at a later course for hopefully intervening with some earlier uh, medications and treatments. And 
that project has been kind of five years in the making because the data collection is so important and understanding how we're collecting that data. So I think just partnering with someone to collect data and always collecting data broadly is going to be really helpful. Yeah. I I mean, there's a trade-off between like the burden of collecting the data and like its usefulness. Um, But I think that it, you know, it's hard to know what will be useful ahead of time. And so if you have like a, a good data collection strategy that will let you capture as much of that patient interaction and like care as possible. Um, Even if it maybe is not relevant to the research question you're trying to collect that data for, Um, you know, there's also IRB trade-offs and like what you can and can't collect and things like that. Um, So there's some sweet spot on that trade-off where, okay, I'm collecting a pretty broad set of variables that like may contain some interesting information, but I'm also not having to, you know, spend two years arguing with the IRB about why I'm, videotaping all of my patients on my iPhone. Right. <laughs> um, I guess, I guess my last, uh, my last question for you guys is we've seen, we've seen a lot of papers that have shown the merits of AI, <laughs> but I feel like everybody has been scared to put AI versus doc plus AI in an RCT type of fashion saying, well, let's see, let's put, let's put the human element alone to the test. Do you think that's coming next? Do you know of any? Am I so, wrong? Is it- so there are papers that show that, and unfortunately, AI does better than Doc plus AI in some of these comparisons. Mm. Um, it's not true across the board. Sometimes the AI plus MD does better, um, but there are definitely, and I can we can put these in the show notes. Definitely some studies where AI plus MD just does worse than either AI on its own or MD on its own. <laughs> and there's a lot of stuff I had seen from adult literature, especially yeah. in radiology, but I I don't know if we have breach that uh that gap in the in the NICU I don't know if no, no. Do you, no, no okay no <laughs> not yet I think most of the work in that area has been done in ophthalmology and radiology, radiology yeah. yeah yeah my uh my future uh my wife my brother's uh fiance is interesting in radiology and I said you better read some of that AI stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> I, don't know. I do think that's a good point like I, if you're a if you're a med student yeah. listening to this like you know, just familiarize yourself with these methods because I do think in some way it's probably going to touch a lot of fields of medicine in the yeah. next 10 or 15 years or sooner in some fields, um, radiology, pathology specifically. Um, but yeah, if, you're, I, if you're in it, then it won't be as scary <laughs> than if you're like coming in and all of a sudden there's an algorithm that you have to like. I, I teach a med school class and like every year, there's like a line of very nervous looking students. And I just know, well, they're the people who want to go into radiology. Because <laughs> uh, they're going to come up and ask me if they still go into radiology. And I tell them, yes, uh, but uh, just you should, you should be aware of the changes that are happening. Well, yeah, we're definitely near the end. And we got so engrossed in the topic that we really didn't even get to learn so much about the two of you. And just <laughs> seeing the way you guys banter and the way you guys came on the call, I mean, I... I'm sad that we missed out on that, but I, I wonder, at least for listeners um, who may have, um, you know, a couple at home who is doing a lot of collaborating, um, how do you guys manage that? You know, uh, spending a lot of time together. How do you not work while you're at home, or yes, work while you're at work? Um, how does how does that how do you get it all done? Ninety seconds left. Go. Yeah. <laughs> um, Yeah, you know, I think it's just been so much of our relationship from the beginning Mm -hmm. that we've sort of worked together and talked about each of our jobs that it's just sort of become kind of part of what we do together. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, our dinner conversations are sometimes very technical. And I'm sure our daughter, when she grows up, is going to be like, oh, even now she's two. And she'll be like, no, no talking, no talking. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it's just like sort of part of our relationship. We definitely, you know, we don't work all the time. We don't talk about it all the time, but it's just kind of woven throughout our relationship. Um, But, you know, you just have to know when to stop talking about it. And it is a balancing act between like engaging as a spouse versus engaging as a collaborator. And sometimes if the spouse is not super happy, then it's not wise to engage as a collaborator. (laughs) And so I I do think that uh, message all around. Right. 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 Um, So you, you, I mean, I think especially uh, I have to think about this a lot because I tend to just be, I don't have an off switch with this uh, stuff uh, very easily. And so um, I have to be, I have to just uh, be mindful of like what's going on in Kristen's life 
outside of the projects that I'm very excited about and make sure that like, uh, I'm not overwhelming her with emails and Slack messages right. and stuff like that. Cause you know, I still have my clinical stuff. Right. I do too. I'm, I'm on call. I have service time. So, you know, we have to make it mm-hmm. all work in some way. And then sometimes like this morning, the toddler isn't happy. Uh, and she has a meltdown when we're trying to get her out the door to do a podcast together. And then we <laughs> show up and, and keep it together. <laughs> well, so. Yeah, well, we appreciate happy. you making the time then. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. It was it was a lot of fun. I think there's a, there's a mm-hmm. lot of uh, things that our audience is going to learn from this discussion. You guys were amazing. And we'll put all these resources in our show notes so that people can actually start the process of learning yeah. about AI. I'm really excited myself about those conferences that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, um, thank yeah, you. And I'm happy to like, if anyone wants to work together, yeah. feel free to email me. Is it, is it, um, so is it okay for us to put your emails in the show notes as well? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, part of the reason why we were excited is that we think that this is going to take a broad community-based effort to like mm-hmm. maximally achieve this. Mm-hmm. And so we would love uh, to start building that community and um, putting those uh, resources in place. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, Amazing. Cool. Well, thank you so very much. Yeah, right. thank we'll you guys. help any way thanks. we can. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is great. All right. Thanks, everyone. All right. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Incubator. If you liked this episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast or the Apple Podcast website. You can find other episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or the podcast app of your choice. We would love to hear from you, so feel free to send us questions, comments, or suggestions to our email address, nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Instagram or Twitter at nikupodcast. Personally, I am on Twitter at Dr. Nikki, spelled D-R-N-I-C-U, and Daphna is at Dr. Daphna MD. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.